Center for the Study of Race, Politics, and Culture at the University of Chicago, New Dawn, a show about understanding the connections between race, capitalism, and neoliberalism, with your host, Michael Dawson. Joining in are J. Philip Thompson, Professor of Urban Planning, and Jason Jackson, Lecturer in the Department of Urban Planning at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. We're at the first New Dawn podcast. I'm sitting with two colleagues, I almost call them comrades, but that's from a different generation. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not that old. Some of the people at this table are that old. <laughs> but I'm with Phil Thompson and Jason Jackson, both um, colleagues from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. We're here to talk about race and capitalism, and with, just, with the three of us, it wouldn't have been a very academic talk for very long, but this week it will not be academic whatsoever. We're, this is the first podcast after the election of one Donald Trump as president of the United States with grave implications for the communities within which we work and the future of those communities. So I'll start by, on a general level, Phil, tell me a bit about you're thinking about race and capitalism and its implications in, our, in this new situation for organizing in communities, in cities, and for that matter on college campuses as well. Well, I'll say two things just to kick it off. Uh, one is that um, <clears throat> W.E.B. Du Bois wrote in Black Reconstruction, and elsewhere, that capitalism created two proletariats, uh, and not one. And that capitalism from the very beginning uh, gave white workers the role of policing, supervising workers of color domestically and internationally whether it was in the regular police forces and army or um, <clears throat> an informal uh, repressive militias like the Ku Klux Klan. In addition to giving white workers an honorific status based on their skin color and exemption from slavery, or at least direct slavery. And in saying this, Du Bois indicated that Capitalism has never been a system separate from politics and government, that it is politics and government is an essential part of what capitalism is, and the repressive aspect of government is an essential part, the racially repressive aspect of government is an essential part of what government is. Um, that was one. And I think we've seen that uh, aspect of capitalism really challenged again through the Black Lives Matter movement um, and it's been challenged over and over and over again throughout black history as well as globally um, so that's one issue that thrust itself into the last election and I think part of what we saw amongst white people was a reaction to say actually with the prospects of America becoming majority non-white, we want to double down on that kind of thinking and essentially repression on communities of color, non-white communities. So I think that's an important part of what's going on in this moment. Second thing I wanted to say was, <clears throat> I was just in a conversation this morning with Jerry Hudson, who's secretary treasurer of one of the largest unions in the United States, the Service Employees International Union. He's African-American. And one of the things he said was 22% of their, of their members or so voted for Trump. And he said that they're about to begin conversations 
in Michigan with their members were even in higher percentage voted for Trump. And he is saying that it is not possible to discuss what the union's agenda must be. And all of these members support the union. He said, we just can't talk about policies and programs that help workers or help families without talking about race. He said, race is now in the way of all of these conversations they need to have about how to improve the lives of working people. So I would just say that. Jason? Uh, thanks, Michael. Um, so there are a couple of things that I guess we could think about right off the bat. Um, one is that it may be useful for us to also place um, what we're observing now in the U.S. in global context um, and in historical context as well. Uh, so we think about the relationship between race and capitalism. Um, it's useful perhaps for us to consider on one hand um, the outcome in the United States um, from this recent election as uh, reflecting similar trends, of course, that we've seen in Europe. So, of course, there's a lot of talk even before the election, a lot of warnings um, about the lessons of Brexit. Yep. Um, but I think even more broadly, um, we could think about the rise of the far right in much of continental Western Europe um, and explicitly um, uh, racial dimensions, of course, um, of this rise, um, perhaps most recently um, as a response to the Syrian refugee crisis, um, which again is something we could analyze in the context of race and capitalism. Um, uh, and then even if we step outside of the North Atlantic states, um, we see the rise of the right in many developing countries as well. Um, and here I think India is probably the most important for us to think about, um, where we have uh, Narendra Modi, um, a uh, leader of an explicitly religious nationalist party um, that ran on an uh, anti-Islamophobic um, uh, agenda. So this is a global trend. Uh, so secondly, I would suggest, um, uh, once we think about it in global terms, um, to think about it in historical terms as well. And this is where it gets even more worrying. Um, and so if we think about um, uh, the late 19th and early 20th century, um, so a period of uh, global liberalism, uh, this is the moment of the gold standard, um, a moment of uh, high levels of trade, um, uh, movement of people, uh, movement of finance globally. Uh, so the first globalization. Um, and as we all know, the first globalization ended with World War I. Um, and again, was accompanied by the rise of fascism um, uh, in Europe and elsewhere. Um, after this first globalization, after the Second World War, we saw a period of that many have referred to as the golden age of capitalism, um, especially again in the North Atlantic, but also in many developing countries as well. Um, a period where international trade and the movement of capital um, was somewhat restrained um, and states were able to focus on uh, populations, um, on labor, on building corporations that were hopefully designed to uh, generate social welfare outcomes. Now, of course, in the United States, this golden age of capital wasn't golden for everyone, right? It had explicitly racial dimensions. Um, so white working class, uh, members of the white working class, of course, were privileged uh, much more over the black working class um, the 1950s and 60s through sets of policies at the state and, and corporate level. But nevertheless, this period again was broken by the crash in the 1970s and the rise of neoliberalism. So this, I lay out this global and historical context um, simply for us to think about what does this mean now? We see a return of the right um, in the global south as well as the global north um, in a period where neoliberalism has come under significant threat. Um, uh, both from the left and the right. Uh, but unfortunately, it seems that, at least at the polls, um, in countries like India, in much of Europe, and in the United States, the right seems to be ahead. So what does that mean for um, thinkers and activists on the left, I think, is a big question for us to, to consider. Well, one of the themes that I think is correct is that the political parties, at least in the North Atlantic, and particularly in the U.S., have lost contact with working people across race and class, uh, have become much more the tools of Wall Street, Fleet Street, um, and global capital throughout the world. One, I've also made some of the parallels in my own mind between this period and the late 19th and early 20th century, not the least of which is how race was used in the former period to break up the populist movement of farmers' alliances and the like um, through ra raising what they call at the time the bloody flag. One difference, though, is 
that as was reflected in the U.S. polls, the right is stronger organizationally, but not necessarily numerically. And particularly if we think about immigrants, African-Americans, and other marginalized, particularly urban populations, there's a very strong potential that's totally unrealized at this point for mobilization and resistance. The question is, what is that vehicle going to be? The left parties and left organizations that were so strong during the 20th, at least compared to now, so strong during the 20th century, the unions. Um, a lot of the vehicles for mobilization of the 20th century are either much weaker or non-existent. So how do those get rebuilt? Well, maybe I could start. The period that Jason was talking about, the first globalization, I would I actually think of it as the second. I think the first was the slave trade and yeah. the cotton industry and, and so forth. But if you look at that second globalization, um, two things needed to happen. One was the breakup of the populist movement and other in multiracial movements. And that was largely accomplished, accomplished domestically through legal segregation, apartheid, literally separating peoples, um, preventing those interactions. Um, <clears throat> but from an economic standpoint, that didn't work. And leading to the Great Depression and then a lot of CIO labor organizing to rebuild those multiracial coalitions, and that itself became threatening. Mm -hmm. And then came World War II, and an opportunity to make a lot of money, create a lot of jobs um, through giving loans to Northern Europe, um, and also grabbing up resources in former colonies and things like that. And that enabled the creation of a different kind of segregated workforce with a white male unionized labor force really benefiting. And then the creation of the modern ur urban ghetto, which all white construction unions literally helped build so whites could move out to the suburbs, build a national highway system, all done by segregated white construction uh, workers and blacks confined to the inner cities, etc. Then came the civil rights movement, which challenged all of that and said, we want that. We want to be integrated into this Keynesian state. And we want the New Deal platform. And here's what the right did. They said, we'd rather, we'd rather destroy Keynesianism. We'd rather destroy the New Deal than integrate it. And the consequence of that was that there were actually more whites on welfare than blacks on welfare. There are actually more whites who need health care than blacks who need health care. And they said, we're going we're gonna to move white workers through rhetoric and media and through ra championing racism. Well, you know, you got to protect your tax dollars from the blacks and Latinos and others. But economically, they didn't have anything to deliver. And so moving manufacturing jobs to Asia or elsewhere made more money for investors, but it didn't help poor white workers. And I think that's part of this moment, the crisis of this moment, that they made a mistake here in that they cut the economic base out of their work, white working class political constituency, and they themselves lack a program for what to do. So I think the challenge for progressives is to actually come up with that program. I personally think that we can't do so just thinking within a nationalist nation state context. I think we have to have global labor standards, global environmental standards, that we actually have to work with the global colored proletariat and figure out how we all rise together. I don't think there's a nationalist solution. That's a very different paradigm than what Bernie Sanders talked about and from what Trump talked about. One of the challenges I would argue today is for, particularly for 
global capital is they promised, I think, I would say three things. Um, one was a little bit of the pie for the white working class, or the white middle class, petty bourgeoisie, what I might have called them 20 years ago. <laughs> I can't, I'm not as old as you all are. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, either that or I hung on to the rhetoric <laughs> way too long. <laughs> uh, the second thing they promised, though, which I think we also saw uh, manifested to in a little bit in this election, or maybe a lot, is some version of male privilege being protected. And then the third is, is obviously white privilege being protected. I think what we saw was a perfect storm in this election where we've seen, we've seen since 2008 well, Obama was extraordinarily safe for global capital, enabled them to do global capital to do things they couldn't do before, in fact, in massive ways. Um, and it was not very good for many communities of color. The, uh, certainly, his rates of deportation were unprecedented. But symbolically, it was a body blow to white privilege at perceived by rank and file. Uh, white working class, white middle classes, who have believed the line that black folks are equal, as my work shows, that they, in fact, from some of the survey we worked even as early as the 90s, the majority of white people thought that blacks had higher rates of employment, better health outcomes, and it generally had better life than they did. So what we saw was a revolt across all of these different types of Props to global capitalism. And what Trump promises, I, I'll lie to you and tell you they're going to get some more money, but I can promise you that we'll put the other folks back in line. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, and I think um, the troubling thing is that um, that kind of objective is likely much easier to accomplish um, than is the objective of materially improving the lives of the white working class, um, at least along the kinds of lines that um, many of its members have um, suggested um, they want. So this kind of hearkening, this yearning for a sort of 1960s, 19, well, not quite the 70s, but certainly 1960s um, pre-globalization uh, kind of lifestyle. Um, one of the questions, though, I think for us um, uh, is, what are the options on either side, given the current configuration of business and capital um, in the United States and globally? Um, so if we're in a moment where we have seen the fragmentation of production, as Phil has um, made reference to, um, where jobs, for example, from uh, North Atlantic countries have gone increasingly to developing countries, um, is that a process that can be um, not reversed? Um, but what sorts of changes um, may be in line is one question. Um, and a second related one um, has to do with the service sector, um, which is really the main source of um, low to middle level wages, um, wage employment uh, in the United States. We're seeing big transformations in the service sector as well, um, not least with the rise of various forms of digital economies. Um, so of course we can think about the, the sharing or platform or other gig economy um, as one example, uh, but we can also think about a more conventional um, uh, areas of service employment where digital modes of management, um, so management through algorithmic methods, um, through electronic surveillance and so forth, um, is driving new kinds of, of management techniques um, that are really extracting more and more, um, uh, uh, are really serving as tools of greater extraction um, from labor. Uh, so given this kind of structure, um, what are the options that are available from a policy standpoint, from an institutional standpoint, um, from the state is a really big question. One of the challenges, it seems to me, that when organizing started in the, well, didn't start in the 40s and 50s and 60s, but when it started winning some victories in the, in the 50s and 60s, or that there were some very concrete goals that the black movement, for example, focused on. It might be a stop sign in Richmond, California, which was part of how the, the Panthers got started to a significant degree. Uh, it could be the dismantling of Jim Crow, obviously a very large task, but one that uh, involved massive organizing of literally millions of people uh, across not just the southern United States, but throughout the United States. 
what are, what are some of the concrete goals that particularly communities of color can be focused on over the next few years? Well, I've seen estimates by economists that it would cost about six, seven hundred billion a year to fully employ every unemployed, able-bodied worker in America. And I've seen estimates that the real bailout of uh, financial houses in 2008 was in the $10 trillion range. Um, and we're talking about one twentieth of that being able to employ every able-bodied person in America. I think we're far past the point where everyone uh, can be out of poverty, everyone can be employed, um, and I think the digital economy actually even offers greater opportunities for a generation of wealth collectively. Our way of thinking about the ownership and distribution of that wealth is locked into the 18th and early 19th century ideas and models of which capitalism is. And that is really, I think, the task of right now, is how do we rethink work, rethink distribution, rethink ownership fundamentally? And I think Obama missed huge opportunities uh, to do that in 2008, but I don't think there's a body of ideas that he even was exposed to in order to think about how to use the takeover of General Motors as an opportunity for changing ownership or changing the way manufacturing happens in America. I don't think he ever got had a clue about how to do that. And he was entirely focused on just preventing immediate collapse because of the speculative excesses of Wall Street. Um, but we're at a point where it absolutely makes no sense to bail these folks out time and time again. Um, and we could have, what would it mean for every able-bodied person in the US to actually have a good job? And we're talking $50,000 a year, if you read Poland's book or whatever, it would cost about 600 million a year. It's doable. Um, so that's the moment where I think we are. Um, and I think an agenda like that for the black community actually could resonate in, in white communities, actually could resonate in a lot of communities if we can put some arms and teeth around that. Would, would you tie that to environmental concerns as well? Absolutely. So the oceans are rising. Um, there's been no serious attention to the infrastructure consequences of that. Two-thirds of our population live in areas that are vulnerable to sea level rise, that alone, we're running out of fresh water. Our entire, and, and we grow um, half our food in deserts and water has to be pumped in. From a carbon standpoint, and energy, it's just crazy. From a water conservation standpoint, it's crazy. We transport vegetables at 38 degrees, 1500 miles per, on average, which is crazy. Um, we haven't dealt with it. We could reduce, uh, one third of our energy is heating buildings. That could be reduced by close to half through energy efficiency. 900,000 buildings in New York City alone need to be retrofitted. That's just one city. It's work for not one generation, for multiple generations. China is in the middle of building 13 high-speed rail lines simultaneously. We don't have one. Um, so I, there's, trillions of dollars of work that would actually pay for itself that has to get done anyway for the survival of the planet. India and China have one billion people moving into cities in the next 10 years. They're building a Houston, a city the size of Houston every month. There is not enough concrete and steel, the raw materials in the world to sustain this level of development for even 10 years. And so the need for research on green building materials and the production and manufacture of that is urgent in India, it's urgent in China, opens up whole new arenas for manufacturing, for development that we could participate in. 
along with others, and that's just one example. So I think the green economy opens up enormous sorts of opportunities for value generating manufacturing and production in the future. We're just not even talking about those things. So I might just add just very briefly um, on this question of environmental concerns. Uh, on one hand, we're sitting in Chicago on a 70 degree day in the middle of November. So that really makes one think really carefully about what's happening with the environment. But uh, just, just you know, one of the concerns I think that we have to be um, attuned to um, uh, lies with the kind of models that are being um, offered uh, to address environmental concerns. Um, so the logic of markets um, as a means of organizing activities still remain dominant even in arenas um, like environmental management. Um, we see this of course with carbon markets, um, but in many other areas as well. Um, and so if we're really to uh, find solutions to these environmental challenges, um, it behooves us to rethink um, the logic of private ownership um, uh, that Phil alluded to earlier, um, the logic that markets um, offer the most uh, efficient and socially beneficial means of uh, generating societally beneficial outcomes um, in order to stem the global trends that we're seeing towards environmental degradation that are a fundamental outcome of, of contemporary capitalism. I would agree and I would also um, add that we really have to struggle against it didn't start with neoliberalism. Neoliberalism accentuated this trend of assuming that the logical markets are the morality for all types of value systems. Whether we're talking about the environment, we're talking about the, about the arts, we're talking about education, none of those arenas should be dominated by market values. I actually don't think, I think markets are really a dumb instrument um, a, a simple, dumb incentive system for getting people to do things. That's it. And I think all those, uh, Karl Marx once wrote at the end of Grundy's, is long, he said, uh, he said, I wrote all this stuff to thousands of pages to explain to white workers what any slave knows intuitively. That all of this stuff, property relations, market, it's all made up. It's no necessity to it. And it's done to justify a power relationship. That's all I've been trying to say. And every slave who's captured and made to work already understands that intuitively. So what's complicated are not markets. Markets are a dumb tool. We could play with them too. Put them. What's complicated are all of these theories and justifications people put up to justify a power relationship. But, and, uh, and I would agree with you on that. I, I just think that a lot of liberalism, a lot of liberal theory, a lot of what we call democratic theory are actually dressed up justifications for power domination of workers and people of color, etc. And that's where the logic is. But he also added in capital, not but, and he added in capital that the evil genius of that was that it made people assume that they were free and equal. That's what the infrastructure was for. That, and that's where the complications are. Yeah. Right. But it's not actually in markets. Market, there is no logic to markets. It's a simple, dumb instrument. You know, it's the, the more dangerous ideas, I think, are... Really, I, I really think it's been the degradation of, if you hold that some of the highest ideals of liberalism, John Dewey stuff, people should have an ability to pursue their own ends. People should treat each other with respect and respect other people's choices in their life, things like that. People should, liberal theory doesn't uphold that. Liberal theory throws that out the window and gets into a lot of justifications for inequality and ignoring real life uh, and substituting sort of this idealizations of what real life is in order to justify the status quo. I think that's been the problem and it's in political theory. It's in political science, probably more than it is in economics. I think economists don't even think about these things. They get caught up like engineers in, in pipes and valves and 
you know, static pressures and things like that. They're not even thinking about these bigger issues. I think it's political science, sociology, some of these other disciplines that are even more culpable. Philosophy, even more culpable. We can argue about economics. <laughs> I, I'm at the University of Chicago. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, if they were if they were actually putting forward Gary Becker and Milton Friedman. Well, I, I, I think those are actually simple-minded theories when it comes to society. I don't think they have much to say at all. They they kind of just I don't think they I don't think there's much there actually in terms of social theory. I don't think they have much social theory. I think of some of these other disciplines that are actually more pernicious. We could have that <laughs> debate. I mean, there's plenty of blame to go all the way around. Exactly. Exactly. But I think people put so much on the economics profession, I don't even think that they are socially conscious of, of what their, the implications of their theories are. Or, or when they do talk about it, they make these grand assumptions that actually have no bearing on history aren't connected to reality, but the disciplines that do look at history, do look at social relationships, I think they're even worse. Yeah, I mean, conversations for economists remind me of conversations I had when I worked in engineering for 10 years. Exactly. Um, I'm at MIT and I, I deal with them, and, and believe me, it's just like talking to engineers. But. One of the implications, at least one of the questions that emerges from the claims you're making about the ability and necessity to A, move to a green economy, B, to employ everyone, and C, they have different models of collective wealth, wealth ac ac accumulation, et cetera, is can that be done under liberal democracy? Well, I mean, I think that's a good question, but I mean, it always depends on the actual institution. So liberal democracy is not infinitely elastic, uh, but nevertheless can come in many institutional forms. Um, so of course, many people often look to the Northern European examples, for instance, for better distribution outcomes, and one doesn't have to get into a conversation about Denmark and uh, Sweden, uh, which is often not very helpful in, in other contexts. Um, but ultimately, I think what we can say is that uh, Institutions are outcomes of ideas on one hand, and political um, uh, the expending of political energies um, to convince people of the validity uh, of those ideas on the other. Um, and this is where I think um, uh, the kind of liberal market outcomes um, that Phil was referring to have been successful, um, and where the work of uh, people like Friedrich Hayek, um, von Mises, and of course Milton Friedman were very successful. So they laid a groundwork um, that contemporary political as well as economic actors are able to build on and just consider as second nature. So it's not even debated. Um, but nevertheless, what it suggests, I think, for progressives is that we need to think very carefully about the kinds of institutions, kinds of institutional possibilities um, that can be put into play. Um, and the kinds of organization that we need to have on the ground to convince people at various levels, not just at the elite level, um, but also um, at various levels of our already racially and economically stratified society in order to build movements that can have the kinds of redistributional outcomes and that will be socially beneficial and environmentally beneficial as well. I think that um, nation states as the sort of main vehicle that uh, governs the economy and society ultimately uh, needs to shrivel in importance and that more robust forms of local democracy that actually engage people um, and that make uh, uh, that allow local folks to make more of their own decisions um, I think that's where the future lies and all kinds of, uh, of ways that people in the U.S. can connect with other people socially and politically, because we already are connected economically, we just don't know it. Yeah. Um, that, so we can be more conscious about all of us, about the decisions we make. So for example, um, Hayek said capitalism is, is an information management system. And that that's why centralized economies don't work, because you just can't manage that much information. But now with technology, we have the, the internet worldwide. And so if you buy a product, you could actually 
have a barcode on the product and people could take their phone, snap the barcode and find out what workers made this product, what they got paid, what the environmental impact was of this production facility. And they could actually compare those things and make decisions about what they want to buy on that basis if they wanted to. So we have that capacity now to manage information in a way that ordinary people can actually make social and political decisions when they buy things, when, they, when they're engaged in the market. And so what does a governance structure look like when you have that kind of compa uh, capacity? I would say the opportunity for movements in India um, of workers who work on the supply chain for Walmart to connect directly with consumers and purchasers here in the US, that could happen right now. Um, we're in a country where labor has about a quarter of stock ownership in Wall Street, but exercises no real judgment about where those investments go. Uh, we're in a country where, to take New York State, where I'm familiar, the city comptroller is an elected official, manages $127 billion on behalf of city workers. The state comptroller, another $150 billion. Um, CalPERS in California manages about double that. And these folks could come together and make very different decisions, which would change what finance capitalism is if workers actually had voice and consciousness about what the implications were of their money going here versus there. All those things are possible right now. So I actually think that what Marx said about capitalism creating its own successor within it in the course of its own development, I actually think that's happened. If we look at some of these capacities that exist right now, I think we have plenty of material to think about what a system to replace it could look like. Um, and for political scientists, I think we need to think about what would a governance structure, given those kinds of informational economic capacities that already exist, what kind of governance structures could actually build on that and facilitate that? So if I could just pick up on, on that point. So one of the things, um, sort of going back to uh, where Phil just uh, started with Hayek and, and information that we have to think about with respect to governance is what we're seeing, I think, is um, not a situation where um, we want to imagine a governance structure, but rather a situation where we have competing governance structures. Um, so if we think about the role of information and platforms, for example, just in this recent election, with the role of Twitter, which is a platform for disseminating information, or Facebook, which is another platform dis for disseminating uh, information, which um, many believe was hugely important um, in facilitating Trump's victory, it opens the question about what kind of information and whose information is deemed to be uh, more or less legitimate, more or less uh, truthful, uh, if one can uh, even use that term, uh, becomes a political question. Um, and so even for to think about the role of information in linking different actors in the across the global economy, using the kind of digital infrastructures which are available, and we also have to think about the competing governance structures, the actors that may be in charge and the ways in which they may craft and shape different kinds of information and the kinds of political and economic effects they may have. Um, so again, it's, it's something to, to come back to that we're already talking about, which is that there's a central political economy questions um, that underpin um, uh, these issues um, that come back to questions of, of power. And those are questions we fundamentally And, and just on that, here's what I say to unions and community groups now. There's actually no magic in Facebook's architecture. It's not, you could, what makes Facebook Facebook, which makes Twitter Twitter, is social cooperation. So people agree, we're gonna use this platform to talk to each other, or that platform to talk to each other. That's what makes it powerful. Not that they have an exclusive hold on technology that no one else can replicate. You know, It's not like we're gonna build General Motors in Detroit and you know, no one else has that technology or capacity, and so you gotta come to us. It's not like that. And so that means if we're conscious about what you're saying, what kinds of information we want, who controls it, how it's controlled, through organizing, we can actually take down a Facebook. We can take down a Twitter. We can put something else there. I think they're more sensitive that, that about that and aware of that than we are, and, and 
we being our communities and, and folks who use it. But I think in this new digital economy, there's a lot of opportunity for disruption. There's a lot of opportunity for taking power. Um, it's just that political science, our disciplines are not really exposing that. They're not, they're far away from thinking about that. Um, but I, I think the technology itself is not the problem. We've been talking a lot about various possibilities, both short range and long range for organizing government structures, economic structures, movements. What's the greatest danger we face over the next four years? <laughs> That's what we're going The nightmare scenario, the dystopian scenario. Um, uh, I think a, a continued fragmentation, so in the United States, um, maybe we can begin there. Um, I think a continued fragmentation of the polity. Um, I think a further strengthening of um, the far right, because um, I don't think we should just sort of say the right, because um, there are big gaps between what we what we typically have thought about as the right um, and the far right, which has become uh, particularly powerful recently. Um, between those forces on one hand um, and uh, progressive forces on the left, um, withering of the center, um, I think that is a serious concern. Um, I think on the economic front, um, one of the ways in which um, a Trump administration could at least appear to be addressing some of the demands of um, the, the base from which it drew uh, is through um, high levels of spending. Um, so we can imagine um, under, uh, even with the Republican House and Senate, um, bills being approved that facilitate big amounts of spending um, that can generate economic growth um, and that can be seen to be um, a reflection of a successful mode of economic management um, by a Trump White House, um, even while, of course, raising deficits. Um, and traditionally, Democrats have been very vulnerable to this kind of um, action by Republicans because Democrats tend to be less concerned with deficit spending as a general matter, um, something we're familiar with. So I think that's also a threat on the economic front. Um, globally, um, I think, uh, sort of following on, on very similar terms, um, what's going to happen in other contexts that we haven't mentioned yet? Um, so I start by saying that we've seen a shift to the right in Europe, um, obviously now in North America, um, and also in places like India. Um, but interestingly, in the 2000s, what we saw in Latin America was a shift to the right, uh, sorry, to the left. Yeah. Um, and so what's going to happen in, in some of these other um, contexts? Um, so Brazil, you know, if we're having this conversation 24 months ago, we'd be pretty happy about, or very confident about Brazil. Brazil, of course, faces um, a huge crisis um, coming off of Dilma's impeachment. Uh, but nevertheless, what's happening in Latin America, um, what's happening um, uh, in countries um, in both North and Sub-Saharan Africa, um, as well as other parts of Southeast Asia, are going to be really, really big questions. Um, what kinds of shifts might we see in the political economy um, in these countries um, will have big implications um, for where we go um, globally? Well, I don't think that um, Donald Trump or the um, right-wing elements in Brazil or the Brexit folks have any economic solutions to the workers, displaced workers who are demanding better lives. Um, in the 70s, I think the financial sector in this country was about 7% of the economy. Today, they're over 40% of the economy and they aren't delivering uh, investments into industries and things that create good jobs or actually better lives, manufacturing things that people in the world would buy because it makes their lives better. They're not doing that. It's all extraction. And the I don't see the right having any alternative to that. And I think the results of that are going to be uh, increasing polarization. So Trump won't be far right enough. For some folks, they're going to want to double down and become more militaristic. Uh, just take things that you know they think you know will help Americans or dominate other countries. Uh, more war. We're already in perpetual war, but double down on that. And so 
I think there's a real danger of neo-fascism um, in this country, and rounding up of immigrants is, uh, you know, is uh, dangerous, and it erodes basic liberties that we've come to expect. I think that's a real danger. And in a country that practiced racial segregation until I was in junior high school, I fully believe that Americans are capable of that kind of those kinds of policies and that kind of mentality. On the other hand, uh, given the global climate crisis, given the absolute that that there are real alternatives to going down this road, that some countries in Latin America and elsewhere began to began to show that you could actually do things differently. I think there's an opportunity for progressive folks worldwide to come forward with alternatives right now. And I think um, even some of these new tech companies and others will want to be supportive of an alternative. Um, and so we're in for, I think we're out of stability. I don't think, I don't see a scenario of stability in the future. I think we have no choice but to fight um, what will become, in, I believe, uh, an increasingly um, angry working class um, and there will arrive, there will be people wanting to take advantage of that to move in very different directions. One of the things that I hope we can learn from the far right is to build, rebuild some of these global networks. I was talking to some members of a European consulate um, this week and they were talking about how their country is facing an election in a few months and how the far right was extraordinarily energized, but those ties, those organizations, organizational, organizational yeah. ties were already there. Yeah. And the right has been very, I mean, organizations that were considered fringe, like Stormfront, um, have been very, very systematic in building ties across the, at least North Atlantic. We can, we can, we can learn some lessons from I, that. I, I, uh, one thing I did like about Leo Panitch's book, um, The Making of Globalization, he pointed out that neoliberalism was a tremendous intellectual project and that the G20 met regularly, the Treasury Departments, every six weeks throughout the 60s and early 70s. They met and exchanged papers and had to, extraordinary to come up with the mechanisms, the legal structure, the ideas that would facilitate trade across a whole bunch of different countries under their control, right? Extraordinary. And then the far right has been doing that. And when you look at what the left does by comparison, like the social, what is it, the World Social Forum, whatever, right. which in my mind is more like a party than a, like not a political party, more no, like, I know what you, meant. <laughs> you know, a, you a, like a hanging out party, <laughs> as opposed to serious, in, intense, organized, disciplined work. Um, and I agree. I think that is a necessity yeah. if we're going to figure out how to fight. And one of the things that Phil has been harping on the entire time we've been talking, and I think this might be a good place to close on, part of that work has to be intellectual. We have to think about what's next. We have to think, analyze structures and capacities and try to figure out where the fulcrums are to move some of these. And I think some of the challenges that are going to emerge there um, that we need to be aware of um, uh, is the nature of the support that we may get um, for this kind of progressive um, intellectual work um, and progressive activism that's needed. Um, so much of the support um, uh, for the ideas of neoliberalism going back to the Mont Pelerin Society, um, support for a variety of think tanks uh, that emerged really from the shadows to the center of American politics, American Enterprise Institute, Cato Institute, and so forth in the 1980s, um, rested on um, financial support from certain aspects of, of capital, not all. Uh, one doesn't want to be too <coughs> um, uh, simple about thinking about um, capitalism in the United States. Um, today we sort of think of tech capital as being a possibility um, uh, on, uh, for support for, for progressive ideas um, and progressive initiatives. And I would just signal a bit of, of caution. Um, simply because um, much of the ideas um, and beliefs that I believe uh, mobilize or sort of underpin uh, many Silicon Valley sort of tech entrepreneurs and Silicon Valley capital themselves are quite libertarian. Absolutely. Um, and so this is, libertarian ideas are, can be used perhaps in some ways in support of progressive ideas, but then also, of course, they have 
their own history. So that's something for us to be to be cautious about, um, especially again given um, what we said about the role of um, uh, technology companies in controlling information. So through the algorithm methods um, um, that they use, and through the their ability to amass significant amounts of capital. Um, so the kind of network effects and monopoly. Um, uh, propensities towards monopoly um, that we've observed. So I think those are really big questions for us. Um, how do we organize? Um, what kinds of support is available? Um, what role do other institutions play? Of course, universities, which we've kind of talked about in the abstract, but maybe not um, directly um, today, um, are, are questions for us to really think about going forward. Um, I actually think universities are one of the um, institutions not completely captured by corporate capital or government, at least not everywhere. Mm -hmm. And it's really important right now, when you think about where are places that can actually help seed alternative ideas. Um, universities actually have capacity to do that. And there aren't many other institutions I can think of that do. Um, I also think that in terms of leadership and support, for coming up with new programs, new agendas. A lot of it will come from the quote unquote global south or from the non-European or US uh, countries, or even if you look in Europe, from places you might not expect. So the, the leaders, leading person calling for um, conversations and organizing amongst uh, workers of color right now is Roger McKenzie, who's the secretary treasurer of the British Public Sector Workers Union, who's Afro-British, and he is a leader in calling for this. A lot of uh, Latin American countries have been calling for this. And uh, when you think about tech, I don't think we have a quote-unquote class analysis of the tech industry mm -hmm. in the way that people did of uh, the finance sector or manufacturing. Right. I don't think we even have that right now. There's an open source movement in the tech world that's kind of politically all over place. It has some libertarian tendencies, but it's really different right. from a Facebook. And so I just think we have to carefully analyze you know, this period right now in order to figure out how to move. And that's why global perspective is so critical, because even the open source movement, which I know quite well, has one political character if you think about California, but it looks very different in Brazil. Right. which is also a strong threat. So. And Africa, Kenya. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, thank you, gentlemen. It's been a pleasure. And we'll continue these conversations over the next several months. Likewise. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks very much. <laughs>